Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. Wonderful to see you. Great to be with you. Uh, I, saw, I, I, I brought that nigun in because it's a, it's, it's a nigun about Yerushalayim, about Jerusalem. And I'm sitting here, just uh, here in Jerusalem, um, just uh, just steps away from the old city. And um, <laughs> it's been an intense day, and I'm sorry we had to postpone. My bus was late, but uh, I did not want to miss this time with you all. And um, today was a mixture of being at the Gaza border um, and just hearing um, explosion after explosion and the intensity of hearing warfare that close. And um, and being on Kibbutz Be'eri and on at the Navo Navo uh, Music Festival, where uh, you know where the October seventh massacres happened, and just very uh, sad and powerful, reflective day, and um, and uh, and it's a good segue into Sigmund Freud. Um, because I think Freud understood that if we're going to address the conflicts of the world, we're going to have to address the conflicts of the psyche. <laughs> and um, Freud's name was Shlomo. He was Shlomo. And I'm sitting here outside Jerusalem, the city built by Shlomo, Solomon, because King David was not allowed to build the temple because there was too much blood on his hands. So his son, Solomon, was to be the one to build it. Um, and, um, and so too Freud. <laughs> was a builder of temples of a different sort. Um, I wonder how Solomon engaged in transference, transference, one of Freud's great ideas, um, how, how, how Shlomo engaged in transference, to, you know, after the passing of his own, his own father. Just a reminder of transference. It's, you know, let's say you take something from your childhood, it's still in kind of your unconscious realm, how you've been affected by this person, and you kind of um, carry that over into a new person, um, transfer those feelings. So, yeah, we'll explore, explore that and more. But let's start with a poll question. Does most of life occur on the conscious level, on the subconscious level, or on the unconscious level? Where do you think most life occurs, right? Most, um, however you want to understand it, experience, reality, existence, conscious, subconscious, unconscious level. Where is most of the stuff going on? Wow, okay. 
63% think our life is mostly occurring on the conscious level, 25% on the subconscious level, um, just a little repressed, but they're very, very, very present and unconscious, just completely unaware that it's, it's driving us at all, 13%. Okay, friends, let's dive in. How much do our unconscious thoughts in, impact our seemingly conscious decisions? How can we access, work with, and when necessary, feel our unconscious selves? Do androids dream of electric sheep? <laughs> and if so, are they speckled and spotted? And by the way, tell me, tell me about your mother. <laughs> Sigmund Freud, a pioneering neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, might seem like a bit of an odd choice for our series on philosophers. But Freud's work had a great influence on many philosophers who came after him, including the entire Frankfurt School. And his ideas can be seen as in conversation with philosophers who came before him. Born in 1856 to a Jewish family in what is now the Czech Republic, but we think of as Austria, um, while his paternal grandparents were Hasidic and his father was known to be a bit of a Talmud Chacham, Freud lived a secular life that was nonetheless informed by a love for and command of literature. While he was primarily influenced by the Greeks rather than biblical texts, hence his naming of the Oedipus complex, the Bible also was of interest to him. And in his later life, he would write a book titled Moses and Maimonides, which I think I've been told is full of lots of errors and, and misconceptions, but let's bracket that point. <laughs> Um, Freud was forced to flee the Nazis at the very end of his life, dying in exile in England in 1939. He fled from um, Austria to the UK in 38, and then dies in the UK, London in 39. He's best known for his various and groundbreaking forays into human unconscious, into the human unconscious, gifting us with ideas such as the id and the ego and the superego as well as the Oedipus Complex, and penning such works as the interpretation of dreams and the psychopathology of everyday life. His influence, however, is tied, at least in philosophy, to the work of Arthur Schopenhauer, a, pro a proponent of philosophical pessimism, which he elaborates on in the world as will and representation. Some scholars believe that despite what he, what he might have said, Freud certainly was more than curiously familiar with Schopenhauer's work throughout the development of his own. One scholar writes, a close study of Schopenhauer's central work reveals that a number of Freud's most characteristic doctrines were first articulated by Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer's concept of the will contains the foundations of what in Freud became the concepts of the unconscious and the id. Schopenhauer's writings on madness anticipate Freud's theory of repression and his first theory of the ideology of neurosis. Schopenhauer's work contains aspects of what become the theory of free association. And most importantly, Schopenhauer articulates major parts of the Freudian theory of sexuality. We won't dwell too long on Schopenhauer. After all, that might feel a little redundant, but perhaps the meaningful question is how each man envisioned working with these similar concepts. Schopenhauer's pessimism about human existence led him to suggest that human happiness is, quote, only like that of a beggar who dreams that he is king, <laughs> right? <laughs> like a beggar who dreams he's king, uh, just not realistic, the notion that humans can be happy. 
As a result, he was strongly in favor of asceticism as a way to pursue inner peace, right? We should deny this world to find some kind of peace rather than firm it. Meanwhile, Freud thought that asceticism would likely reinforce a repression of one's drives, which he saw as the source of many psychological or behavioral disorders, right? You want to talk it out, not repress it, um, as opposed to Schopenhauer, who wants to, uh, you know, flee. By failing to take responsibility for one's drives, the initial, the, excuse me, the individual and the world he interacts with are both left worse off. One way Freud discusses through which we can deal with repressed drives is what he calls sublimation. Instead of being directed towards the physical act, sexual desire can be sublimated into a different category. There's a very Jewish idea, something that Yalta says in the Talmud, that for every forbidden thing, there is something similar that is permissible. And the sages discuss sort of pathways of fate, suggesting that even if, in some schools of thought, a person's being born at a certain time would destine him to work with blood, he could be a criminal or he could be a shohet, right? An animal slaughter. So even with the evidence of pain in the world and the possibility that it might, in fact, outweigh pleasure, Freud still sought ways for people to actively work, if not on the world, then within themselves to create something better. He famously said that the goal of psychoanalysis was as follows. I do not doubt that it would be easier for fate to take away your suffering than it would be for me. But you will see for yourself that that much has been gained if we succeed in turning your hysterical misery into common unhappiness. With a mental health that has been restored to health, you will be better armed against that unhappiness. For Freud, healing begins began with a journey into oneself. And this is part of what couples him with Nietzsche and with Socrates, who says, know thyself. Right? Socrates thinks wisdom is about knowing yourself. And certainly that's what Freud is pushing as well. And Freud would bring this further by establishing it as fundamental to psychoanalysis, that we must enlist the help of others, such as an analyst, in untangling ourselves. We're kind of all tangled up, mixed identities, mixed desires, mixed values, mixed visions. And we need to untangle some of that to get some clarity on what we're about. This image of untangling, reminds me of the famous, likely Kabbalistic prayer, if you go to Kabbalat Shabbat in a traditional setting, called Ana B'Koach. Ana B'Koach, used by different communities throughout the year, the first line is often translated as a plea for the divine to untangle some aspect of us, right? We're all bound up, we're all, we're all tied up, and we're praying in Ana B'Koach to be untangled. While it's unclear that Freud had any direct knowledge of Jewish mysticism, um, although he certainly had some level of exposure, it's often the case that ideas he develops can find similar examples within the Jewish tradition. While the creation of talk therapy to address and sort through the many forces at play in an individual human mind and life was revolutionary and deeply helpful in the treatment of mental illness and alleviating the distress caused by psychic disorders, it's important to recognize that other interventions are still necessary and helpful for many people. Moreover, I think that all of us have an understanding that the work we do towards social justice is necessary for full and robust mental and emotional wellness across populations, and that many problems seen as mental health issues, in fact, are rooted in social inequality and poor material conditions. 
like the links to poverty and the links to lack of education, links to malnutrition, links to abuse. We have a responsibility to work towards a world where waking from our most wildly wonderful dreams is not absolutely devastating. This brings us into some of Freud's more fun, if controversial work, in dream analysis. Freud believed that dreams were a window into the unconscious, and proper interpretation of dreams could give us a glimpse of whatever desires are being repressed. He developed an idea of dream symbolism in which he labeled the pshat, the literal read of the dream, manifest content, and the remez, meaning the kind of the hint uh, as you interpret a text, as latent content, content, manifest content and latent content. While his method was led by free analysis from the actual dreamer, he did lean heavily into his own quite rigid semiotic key. If you have a dream with manifest content, including something like a sword, an umbrella, a skyscraper, if it looks phallic or it acts phallic, Freud would likely tell you that the latent content is in fact phallic. Though the details of this would depend on the individual, he believed that most of our unconscious desires revolved around questions of human sexuality. Freud concludes essentially that a dream is a wish your unconscious fulfills when you're fast asleep, often related to desires and drives that manifested in childhood and which needed to be repressed. In a dream, a sword can represent something sexual, but because Freud has a very broad understanding of human sexuality, it could also mean something we might not typically view as sexual, such as being cared for by someone we love. Naturally, when we consider dreams as a source of potential information about those unmet, unmet, unmet needs, those unmet needs, they can become a tool for mediating trauma in our lives, especially when we're talking about the earliest events of childhood, which we tend to not remember. Like Freud, and unlike most of his contemporaries, the majority of the Jewish tradition wouldn't see a dream as merely the random firing of neurons during the sleep state. But as with most other things in Judaism, the topic of dreams meets very diverse opinions. Prophetic dreams are integral to the progression of stories in Tanakh. It's repeatedly the case that God provides a symbolic message in a dream that ultimately comes to pass. Yosef, Joseph, interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine, which ultimately sets the story of our residency in Egypt into motion. Or Gideon gains confidence when overhearing a soldier's bizarre dream in Judges 7.13, in which he is symbolized as, barely, as barley bread that destroys the Midianite camp. Our cultural narrative takes dreams seriously, so it's no surprise that Chazal, the rabbis of the Talmud, do as well, while still acknowledging that there's plenty of room for nonsense and the power of positive interpretation. While they famously say that a dream is one-sixtieth of prophecy, that being the rabbinic measurement for just a smidge above what is entirely negligible, they, none, they nonetheless put forward that we should be willing to wait at least 22 years for a good dream to come true. That's about as romantic and hopeful as it gets. <laughs> that, that great uh, dream you had that's one-sixtieth prophetic will we'll take up to 22 years to be fulfilled. <laughs> in compiling their own dream dictionary in the Talmud, we see a variety of interpretation methods focused on Torah and largely conditional. 
They use the same exegetical and homiletical techniques that they do for other subject matters, bringing proof texts from Tanakh, leading into puns, and as always, probing for details. Just a couple examples. If one sees a pomegranate in a dream, the meaning for the rabbis depends on the state of the fruit, large or small, sliced or whole, as well as the state of the dreamer. Are they a scholar or not? A Torah scholar who sees a pomegranate in a dream can expect to engage in the learning and teaching of Torah. However, if one is not a Torah scholar, scholar they can expect to perform plentiful mitzvot. All of these interpretations have positive connotations for the dreamer with those with those two in particular, finding their evidence in Shir Hashirim, the book Song of Songs. Another example, if a person sees a cat, the interpretation depends on what the local word for cat is. <laughs> you can see Brachot 56b in the Talmud to more understand how um, whatever dialect you're using will determine what the meaning of the dream of seeing a cat is. In Derech Hashem, the Ram Chal speaks at length about the composition of dreams. Here's what um, the Ram Chal says, Rabbi Moshe Chaim of Lazaro. When man sleeps, his faculties rest, his senses are quiet, and his mind is relaxed and hushed. The only thing that continues to function is his imagination, and this conceives and envisions various images. Some of these images arise from the individual's experiences while awake. Others may be the result of substances that rise to the brain from food or from the body itself. Such are the stimuli for normal dreams, those which are experienced by everyone. The bond between the body and the divine soul should be somewhat loosened while man sleeps. Higher levels of the soul perceive something they can sometimes transmit step by step until it reaches the animal soul. The imagination is then stimulated and forms images in its normal manner. Sometimes this information is greatly confused and intermingled with distorted images arising from the various substances that enter the brain, while at other times, the information is received very clearly. Information that man could not attain with his powers of reason alone, as discussed earlier. And so friends, and even in the Gemara, we see an attempt at separating dreams caused by indigestion and those that reflect real prophecy. As the sages make their way through interpreting a list of dreams that might be uncomfortable for the dreamer, such as a sexual experience with someone forbidden, they clarify that it may not always foretell something bad. If one dreams of a married woman that one has not seen recently or been thinking about, then it's a positive sign with regards to one's share in the world to come. Right? Who would have thought? In summary... <laughs> In summary, Freud's emphasis on the notion of self-awareness is commendable within a Jewish framework, especially in light of a desire to help people and the development of actual tools to dig below the surface. His ideas might not provide all the answers on how to understand dreams, but this is an area where human knowledge remains very limited. Freud was, of course, working with a motive of supporting his own ideas, as were Kazal. As such, the voices of women and people of subcultures or other experiences historically distanced from the academy or the Beit Midrash, who might have thought about dreams differently, aren't necessarily represented in much of his material. The sages did leave the door open, however, for cultural subjectivity, contextual subjectivity, and likely subjectivity on an individual level. 
while we all have our shared humanity and the capacity to dream, our personal dreams and what they mean can be as unique as we are. So friends, to conclude, we're left with many interesting questions for us to think about. Like what role do you think dreams should have in decision-making? Consider, for example, that Google was invented in a dream, as was the basis for Einstein's theory of relativity. Should contemporary Bate Din, right, Jewish courts, continue to offer dream interpretation as a service? How does that impact your feelings about, the, about, their, about their legal prowess? There's a pretty solid taboo in rabbinic literature around interpreting nightmares as such, with the exception of um, encouraging repentance. What do you think of dreams as negative diagnostics? Consider both individual issues as well as the larger social phenomena of widespread nightmares in times of crisis. And lastly, do you think there's anything we can do with our dreams to help us become better people? We hold a debt of gratitude to Freud for reawakening our imagination to our lives that exist beyond the surface level, beyond surface reality. Okay, friends, um, I um, I would thank Sarah. I would love to. Um, I would love to hear from you. Any of your thoughts on topic or tangentially? Hey, Steve. Hi. Hi. Uh, getting back to your initial free delivery question about consciousness and unconsciousness and where we live our lives. Is sleep considered a conscious or unconscious state in that we spend so much time dreaming? Or is it just a different form of consciousness? Great question. Yeah, great question. So um, I think that those who are um, studying sleep show that based on the depth of the sleep, there are, we're going in and out of different layers of consciousness, different depths that there are, just like think of lucid dreaming dreaming, versus dreaming that um, we can't remember anything at all. And I think there's a, sta a state of sleep which is borderline conscious um, and then goes into the subconscious and then goes very deeply into an unconscious realm. And I think that, um, I think that, the notion that only one sixtieth of the, of the dream is under, is is prophetic, so to speak, uh, is partially t touching on um, just sort of random br brain activity, you know, in in, in dreams and nourishkite, but partially touching on um, on the levels of consciousness that are accessible. That parts of the dream may actually mold us, even if we're not conscious of it. And other parts will only mold us if we consciously bring it in and interpret it and, and engage with it. And so, um, you know, I think the short answer to your great question is that um, consciousness is very complex. Even in a sleep, even in an awake state, we have all layers of consciousness going on at once, right? At this moment, there's so much happening within our psyche that's unconscious, subconscious, and conscious. And it's kind of fluid of how they're informing each other. And so too, in a sleep state, one might say, there's a fluid dynamic between them. So Steve, what do you think about that? Any follow-up or? Just that some of my most, not insights, but reinforcements of, of, of conscious insights have occurred in dreams. I mean, truly profound awakenings 
which upon further um, examination are things that I kind of knew when I was awake, but really never put them into complete sentences. And the dreams were so illuminating to me that they made me know that I actually knew something in life besides the stock market. <laughs> one, um, one of my um, theories on why it's such a blessing to have nightmares is because nightmares, and most people think of nightmares as only bad, but nightmares are a way to experience something without actually experiencing it, helping to cultivate empathy for those who really have experienced it. And so if we experience um, a kind of violent threat, which we never physically experienced in a nightmare, if it's leveraged rather than repressed, we can now potentially empathize more with someone who is experiencing such a reality because without experiencing it, we've experienced it. So anyways, uh, thank you, Steve. Um, we have a small group, so maybe we'll hear from you again. Hey, Stan. Can't help but think of a song that was popular well before you were born, Shmuley. Uh, it was called Dreams by the Elevator uh, by the Everly Brothers. And was basically some type of fantasy. This guy wanted this particular girl, but he could only get her in his dreams. So I mm. said uh, his subconscious that he, he communicated that in the song uh, in a 1950s way of doing it. And uh, if you check the words on it, uh, you can really kind of read through it. As far as dreaming is concerned, uh, I mean, how many of us really remember our dreams? Very rarely. And then you do, you say what... I couldn't finish it. So that's usually the approach. So I, 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 I know that Ford put a great deal of significance into it, but uh, I can't really say that I get it. <laughs> you know, today um, there's surprisingly in the Jewish world, a reemergence of conversation around psychedelics. There's even like a nonprofit or two that are working on that. Um, this attempt to alter consciousness um and engage in different um, layers of reality and some some um one rabbi in particular in the 60s uh, has kind of start talking about those experiences more and more and um yeah it is an interesting uh, question for ourselves of what what layers we're striving to live on many of us are are looking to elevate layers of consciousness rather than um engaged in kind of interpretation of, the, of that which is below. And um, and yet we also know people who aren't self-aware at all because they don't kind of realize drives happening within them. They don't realize parts of how their experience has shaped them. Um, and that feels more important today than ever before um, when so many leaders seem completely unself-aware and for us to model a different reality. But going back to Steve, uh, Stan's point on how much we remember about dreams. About 20 years ago, I got really into trying to understand my dreams. And when I would wake up in the middle of the night, I'd have a pen and paper next to the bed. And I would write I would write down a little bit of what I remembered immediately. And then I wanted to look after a month um, to see what the patterns were. And um, one night I woke up and I was so excited because I had the most brilliant insight of my life. Not only the most brilliant insight of my life, the most brilliant insight that has ever been thought of. And so I was so excited when I woke up in the morning and I looked at the notebook 
and it was full of scribbles. And then at the end of the scribbles, it said, my back hurts. And so there is the extent of my brilliance. Hi, Matthew. Your comment about nightmares and empathizing with other people's position is something I never thought about, but I think it goes to the issue of the bombardment of information that we hear and see all the time that we consciously and subconsciously are affected by. So maybe in the past, you wouldn't have that immediacy of information about war or plague or drought or other things. Now you see it and you're bombarded with it. So maybe the nightmares are more often and seem more real because you've seen it on TV and the video and the YouTube. I mean, you think about someone being pushed in front of a train in New York City subway train. In the old days, you read about it in the newspaper. Then right. you saw it on the TV. Now you almost see it live. So these nightmares become much more real. Just tossing that out, I'm not sure how that has any relevance or anything. But I just think that dreams are changing because of the flood of information right. and people who are manipulating us through that flood of information. That's right. That's right. I, that's exactly right. And um, that that flood is everywhere. And in the world of marketing, we see just the the, the brand identity, the brand, the, how powerful the brand identity is for just, uh, you know, consumer identification and consumer desire, um, as opposed to being kind of um, consumers who interrogate quality. Most commonly, it's, it's you know, and so... Um, and so and so on. I think, like you said, we are just flooded with uh, traumatic news. I mean, when I read the paper, which is very often, um, the amount of negative news that enters my mind, and that's that's only reading. Not to mention, yeah. not to mention, yeah. you know, if you watch there, the news were, or scroll through TikTok. There was a wonderful headline, and I think it was in the Times style section this week, which I haven't read the article about influencers who were not found by what we'll call typical bodies, large people, things, w- women, men who took pride in their large appearance, how some of them are now taking Ozempic and these other drugs and how this is affecting their role as an influencer. You know, it's just a slight play on this whole thing. You know, I yeah. just don't know. You know, oh, it's just, uh, Thanks, but what I'm just saying is we have images and they constantly bombarded with them. Then all of a sudden, the person who's saying it's okay to be large, it's okay to be this, okay to be that, all of a sudden they change. How does that affect us? Mm-hmm. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, very interesting. That's a very interesting point. Thank you. Yes, hi, Lauren. I see your hand up. Hi. I doubt that there are any second gens who didn't grow up with nightmares. You know, when I think of it, I don't remember a time when I was too young to not have known of the Shoah. And my aunt, unfortunately, told me and her daughter a lot about what happened in gory graphic detail. And, And nightmares have been part of my life ever since. But, you know, a lot of my friends are second gen. I basically grew up in a in a survivor community. And um, we're easily triggered. The nightmares become very, very vivid. It's also hard to have dreams when I ever think of it. Like my dad always, my dad taught me 
grow up expecting the worst. And if it turns out to be not as horrible as you thought it would be, be grateful. And it's a terrible way of looking at life. And I tried not to, but you know, you get dreams and things don't work out. And then you feel like you've been, had the rug pulled from under your feet. And you think, oh, I'm my father. This is what's going to happen. So um, that's just, you know, I think there's a generational thing there. And I just wanted to mention it. Thank you. Yes. Um, it's, um, I appreciate you sharing that because as you know, second generation um, has had a mix of experiences. Those whose parents or, or relatives never spoke at all about anything that happened um, or waited decades to do so. And those who heard every detail. Um, my, uh, my wife's grandmother was the type who told my wife at a very young age, everything on her knee, looking at her tattoo on her arm, um, hearing story after story, um, similar to what you described, Lauren. And there's interesting pedagogy. I mean, forget, I'm not questioning any style of how survivors chose to share or not share, but there's interesting general pedagogical questions around what happens when a child receives imagery or ideas before they're capable of processing them fully. Um, just being on the kibbutz th uh, three hours ago, where the October 7th massacre happened. And um, and one of the one of the um, members of the kibbutz who was guiding us showed us the room he was hiding in for 19 hours without food or drink or bathroom with his uh, wife and kids. Um, and that when they, a soldier finally let them out of that room, that uh, the soldier said, cover your kid's eyes as we walk out of here. And he said, why? And the kid was complaining, I want to see, I want to see. But the entire ground was covered with a combination of Israeli members of that kibbutz who were killed and Palestinian terrorists who were, who were, who were killed. And, um, and the soldier, um, even though he was in the midst of this fierce battle, um, you know, had the wisdom to know what would happen to that child's psyche if he were to witness uh, all of that. Now, of course, he's very, very aware of the reality of what happened in that kibbutz. I, I mean, he and she, the, you know, the, they. Um, but do we have to see everything? And I mean, I remember my, I remember my first la layer of nightmares that were, uh, were uh, haunted me for months was a movie, Fire in the Sky. I don't know if anyone remembers that, probably. Uh, almost 40 years ago, but more in the high 30s. Um, and uh, it was about alien abduction. And I remember I just couldn't get it out of my psyche. And maybe you've had experiences like that as well. So yeah, it's, it's very, it's, um, you know, I, I shared a charitable read earlier about the power of nightmares, but nightmares can also be beyond haunting and really uh, traumatize people very deeply as well. Thank you, Lauren. I had um on the, on, the, on the flip side of these dreams, um, you mentioned Einstein and, you know, coming up with his theory of relativity or whatever it was. Um, and I don't necessarily see that influenced by anything else if he, if, you know, if this was a, an original thing that came to him. Um, and in kind of similar fashion, not that I'm a genius or anything like that, but I remember when I was, I think in junior high school, um, my, 
mathematics uh, classes, they would give us like the odd number problems to solve because the answers were in the back. And I made an effort to do all of them. And if I couldn't get the answer, I would stick a pad of paper next to my bed, go to sleep, and then sometimes, more often than not, I would wake up the next morning and I'd find an answer written in there. Now, other times it starts off and then all of a sudden there's just a line drawn down. It must have fallen asleep. Um, but that was sort of an experience that carried over even to today. It's like um, instead of bashing it around and getting a nightmare because I can't figure it out, I just say, okay, well, you know, I'll sleep on it and put a pad of paper. And then sometimes anyway, the next morning, there's a thought that might be related that I hadn't thought about. And that gets me going on a more positive side of things. So I just wanted to mention that. But the other question I had was, uh, what was Freud's opinion, philosophy about religion in general? Mm. Um, that's a great question. Um, there's really a lot to say there. Um, by and large, I mean, if you go back to his book, Moses and, and Monotheism, uh, if, if, I think that's what it was called. Um, he largely thinks that this monotheistic God is some type of illusion uh, based upon an, an, infant's, an infant's needs, an infant's desires to have this all-powerful being. Um, um, and um, right, a form of a uh, of, of projection. And that said, he does he did argue that religion have its its place in her in human needs to restrain violence and um, it, you know and 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 other desires. Um, in in, mod, in modernity could be unleashed. Uh, when it's coupled with science and with psychoanalysis and with reason to have enormous potential. Um, interesting enough um, that, um, you know, and he, I mean, he also thinks that religious texts have to do with suppression of certain violent ideas as well. Um, so there's really, really a lot to say there. And, and I think, again, I think he misreads Moses <laughs> and monotheism there. Um, and, and, you know, and the role of the father in constructing God. But I think one of the interesting Hasidic responses to Freud is that um, just as, uh, you know, as someone like Freud might say that we're not created in the image of God. Rather, we create God in our own image, right? We have a need for God. And so we create a God that looks like us and says what we want them to say and really just affirms kind of who we are. Um, I think the Hasidic response to that is, yes, we do um, project and construct a God, but that projection emerges from our own godliness. And so the, our very projection and construction of God comes out of our own godliness, thus making it true. 
And so the multiplicity of constructions have a multiplicity of truth to them because of where they emerge from. That the very desire, um, the very desire for sex can be holy because of what it can mean in in a relationship and reproduction and um and for you know experience. And so too, the very desire for God is holy, right? Because um that 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 what he would dismiss is, oh, you're like a baby who needs this all-powerful God, right? But the, the flip side of that is actually that desire for the transcendent, that desire for the all-good being is itself a good, um, a good within us, that we want to be like someone who is all-good, and that's constructive. So, Ed, any follow-ups on that, or um, that make any no, sense? That's- uh, I mean, it was confusing, so I just thought I would ask if there was yeah. a simpler answer, but uh, yeah. obviously not. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more complex, uh, yeah. as you say, and, and that's what I sort of get from it, too, is that, wait a minute, didn't you, but does it just wasn't quite making sense if you looked at it from a different, you know, pers- or his different perspectives. Um, you got a multiple multiple answers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think uh, just one or two last things to say on this, because I think it's it's just a a relevant question to our, our, our larger conversations is that religion becomes a product of society's needs rather than a search for higher truth is what Freud might say. Um, that our society has needs and religion is adapting to those societal needs. Um, and um, and those needs are connected to our innate desires as humans for what we want. We want connection and community and purpose. And um, religion is kind of evolving to fulfill those human needs. And so that might lead someone to say, oh, well, religion's all false. It's just a product of our needs and desires. Well, maybe everything is. That we're, is it, maybe our work is false. Maybe our family is false. Maybe everything that matters to us is false because it emerges inevitably out of human needs and desires, um, as opposed to just, you know, the, the pure realm of truth, as some people kind of argue that religion is. The other thing he'll say is that um, humans do have a sense of perfection, of wholeness, of eternity, of limitlessness, that there is something beyond. And he thinks that 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 psychological experience is part of why we, um, you know, are participate in religion, because it's an outlet for that psychological experience to connect that with that which is so far beyond us. So he's 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 a critic and he's charitable and he's secular, but he's interested. And certainly there's a mystical side to his psychoanalysis and all of that. Uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, much of mysticism is about that all of reality as we see it on the surface level is false. And that's what much of what Freud thinks too. He thinks people are fools who are just studying surface level reality, that, that most of reality is below the surface, and, you know, similar to a, a form of mysticism. And that there, in mysticism, there's all these forces within us, within the human soul that are driving us. Um, and so too, in him, that there's in the in the psyche, there's all these forces that are driving us. And the more we become aware of those realities in mysticism and psychoanalysis, the more we can know ourselves and in mysticism, know God, or in psychoanalysis, um, know ourselves for self-actualization, you know, at large. So what do you all think? Like, do you when you think of religion, do you think of religion as like 
something that is true or not true, capital T, do you think of religion as in the or in the category of useful? Is this useful religion or unuseful religion? Or do you think of it in terms of meaningful? It's meaningful or unmeaningful, right? Um, do, you, do, you, do you agree? I mean, we saw it with William James as well, sort of in his pragmatism, this notion of like, um, that it's not bad to judge things based on their usefulness. Um, so um, what do you think? Like when you participate in something Jewish or Christian or, 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 or something else, some other type of spiritual experience, do you do that because you think it's true or because you think it's connecting or because it's meaningful or what? Yeah, Ed, I see you unmuted. And I, I go by, I think it was you that said this at the beginning of all of these uh, philosophers that says, uh, religions provide the answers that we all seek. Philosophers provide the questions. And in that regard, it's like we want the answers. Now, what is it? And religions will provide it. This is what's good. This is what's bad. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is ethical. This is not ethical. Whereas the philosophers might question that. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. in that case, growing up, we probably were looking for the answer. I mean, you know, just, just tell us, is that good or bad? Or did we do that ethically, morally correct or not? And most of the answer would be found in religion. There are so many different interpretations of that good and bad that it depends on which sect of the religion you want to believe in. And so you're, you're left with now questioning, okay, well, wh which one is the truth? And that I think is something beyond human understanding, as I mentioned before, but the effort to get to that truth is based on groups that agree that, yes, there is a God, but you're, as an individual, it's a matter of my belief that that is the truth. However, I think that the individual could say, well, based on my experience, I'm really not sure. And so they might say, well, I believe in parts of what this group says and parts of what this group says and parts of what this group says. And that sort of forms my own mm -hmm. interpretation of the truth without making it being an assumption about the truth that I would go to war for right. or that I would die for. Right. Um, yeah. So there's to me sort of that layers of truth, but it's a difference between the truth and a belief in the mm -hmm. truth mm -hmm. that makes the difference, at least for me. Great. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, I mean, I mean, we're so far in with younger generations these days that um, even to cultivate a desire to search for truth is, is oftentimes feels so lost, right? Forget even the answers of the, the, the Forget even the pathway of how do we find truth. Are we even seeking it anymore? And um, when we are obsessed with um, so many other facets of life, some some good and not so good, some not so good, um, I I find there to be a cultural shift. Not not to say that it was all once great and everyone was a seeker of truth. Of course, that wasn't the case. But um, when I worked with um, 
when I worked with college students in, in, in one stage of my life and only a decade later working with college students, I see such a less interest in questions of truth itself. And then the question of what are we trying to promote um, as a pathway to truth? Is it through answers? Is it through tools, tools to find answers? Are, are we empowering people with tools? And empowering people with more questions and tools sounds really great. But I do think we also do a disservice to youth if we don't give them some foundational principles. Um, yes, foundational principles are complicated to apply. But if we don't teach them that every person is created in the image of God and that murder is wrong and that we want to seek to not harm people and that there are some poor moral truths, um, even though their application is going to get much more complicated, I think we've done a disservice to them. On the other hand, if we shove everything down their, down their throats that religion is giving them the answers and there's nothing for them to wonder or seek or question, then we've also done a great disservice. How to figure out that balance between kind of a hyper-liberal approach that wants to give no answers and a hyper-conservative approach that wants a traditional approach that wants to kind of shove answers down throats, I think is a, is one of the great parenting and pedagogical questions of our time. Um, and I'm curious if any of you have wisdom or experience with any of that. Think about Pesach Seder. What are we trying to do at Seder? What are we trying What are we trying to do? I mean, it's, is, it a, is it a love for Pesach? Is it just getting people to ask questions, whatever questions they have? Are there certain truths we want to convey around anti-oppression anti and justice? Uh, just so complicated. You know, the answer, you know, is it religion meaningful, true, useful? You know, which one of those? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> you know, it just you know, it depends on what you need at that time, what one needs at that time, what's, what's important. And I think that's part of the beauty of uh, Judaism is that you know, the answer to a lot of these things is it's really complicated. And when people want a simple answer, you know, we continually reply, well, you know, it's really complicated. And some people <laughs> with that and uh, embrace the uh, complexity and some people reject it and they want to be told it's Marxism or it's a superego or there's, there is, this is the answer uh, to these issues. And it's just yeah, interesting thank you. to see. Thank you. Yeah, I, I am a I am a fan of complex religion. I'm also a fan of simple religion, but I think we should only have both if they're gonna be held at the same time. Um I think some some of our greatest some of our greatest challenges today are because um people are living with too simple of truths rather than complex truths. And some of our greatest problems today are because people are living in complexity and not with simple truths. Simple truths that um, can 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 guide us every day. The, the power of a hug, the power of being present with somebody, the power power of a smile, the power of a good word. I think it's just so true how deeply impactful these simple things are. Um, well, especially if you're testifying before Congress and you're asked about uh, the Holocaust or anti-Semitism, if you <laughs> embrace the complexity, you're a dead Harvard president. Oh, right. Yes. That's right. the time where you go, that's really complex, but there's a simple thing I want to say right now before we go. <laughs> right, right. And she'd right. still have a job. <laughs> yeah, or if somebody who loves you a lot says, do you love me? And you say it's complicated. Right? It's not going to go so well. Don't do that. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, Gary Friedlander, you want to jump in at all? Okay. All right, Stan. Stan hey, Stan. Uh, some years ago, a friend of ours' daughter was engaged to a non-Jewish guy. And she went to visit him in California and she came back. She said, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about God at their dinner table. 
we never talk about God at our table. In fact, if you were to certainly at our reform or conservative synagogue, we don't talk about God very much. We really don't. So uh, I think Judaism, at least modern day, is more of a religion of action. And certainly Bhagavad Madras personifies that action and learning rather than what do you believe? What is your faith? Uh, I don't think there's anybody who at times does not doubt religion and does not doubt uh, the existence of, of God. And uh, so I, I think that religion is, you know, we don't talk, we don't talk a, a lot about what our faith is and what our belief is. I'll have a non-Jew ask me, well, do you believe in afterlife? Well, you know, uh, I don't know what I believe. <laughs> you know, and, and ask me, what is it today's what? Uh, Tuesday? Yeah, maybe. Uh, ask me tomorrow, maybe not. So that, that's just the way that, the way that we, we look at uh, religion certainly uh, in, in, in modern times. I think that's uh, I think that's very true and very insightful. Yeah, Gary, sounds like Gary, that inspired Gary to want to jump in. <laughs> well, what Stan just mentioned, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I was reading something, uh, Jewish text, and I don't remember exactly uh, what, and uh, basically compared Christianity to Judaism. It says Christianity has theology, Judaism has action. So, uh, uh, I, because that's what we do. I just had to say that. <laughs> just a, a thought. Okay, friends. Thank you all for joining. Sorry we went backwards to Freud. That was only my error that we skipped him um, a, f a number of weeks ago. We're going to get back to living philosophers now, actually number 43 of 45. So we only have three to go in this series. And our thinker next week is a, is a living utilitarian named Peter Singer very com, com, uh, controversial uh, person who just retired from Princeton, spends half his time at Princeton, half his time in, in Australia. We will look at him next week. I hope to not be in another country <laughs> next week, but back with you. But wherever I am, I'm going to be here with you. So <laughs> thank you for joining and um, have a great day.